It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, You've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The St. Louis Cathedral stands sentinel overlooking Jackson Square in the New Orleans French Quarter. Its towering triple steeples have become an iconic landmark of the city. The French were the first to use the present-day site in 1727, nestling the Catholic Church in the heart of their planned city only a stone's throw from the Mississippi River. However, the building that stands today is the last of several in a timeline that practically embodies New Orleans' own, interwoven through both historic and tragic events. But just one of the many things so unique to this architectural masterpiece is that buried underneath the altar of this grand cathedral are the remains of eight Catholic bishops who once presided here. Their legacies just as entrenched into the fabric of New Orleans' history as the cathedral itself. Each a different man from a different era, serving his own unique role in the development of the city. A city where many claim several of their souls still watch over parishioners, sometimes wandering the alleys of the French Quarter, others still singing hymns in New Orleans' oldest ghost story. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. This episode of Southern Gothic is the second of a three-part series called The Birth of a City. Subscribe now on your favorite podcasting app to receive future episodes. In April of 1764, 
King Louis XV of France sent a letter to the governor of Louisiana in New Orleans, informing him the French had ceded control of the city to Spain. The French-Indian War that had erupted over colonial expansion in the Ohio River Valley had not only resulted in the loss of the French territories of Canada and Acadia to the British, but also the French colonies along the Gulf Coast to the Spanish. So in 1762, the Treaty of Fontainebleau was signed, and within two years, New Orleans would be part of the Spanish Empire. For a time, New Orleans' French governing body, the Superior Council, continued to operate as if nothing had changed. Even after March 5, 1766, when Antonio de Ulloa arrived with 75 Spanish soldiers. He governed loosely for two years, his superiors in Havana, Cuba, largely ignoring the city, depriving him of the necessary resources to take complete control. But in 1768, tensions began to flare when the new governor began to flex his muscle, announcing the enforcement of the policies of other Spanish colonies which restricted all business and trade to the Spanish Empire alone. The French Creoles were furious, and as a result, the first rebellion of a North American colony against its European government began. On October 28th, 1768, riots broke out in New Orleans. Planned by French colonial leaders and encouraged by prominent New Orleans families, an armed band of Creoles, Acadians, and Germans poured into the city. But Uloa's small contingent of soldiers could do little to stifle the rebellion, and the Spanish governor was forced to flee to his ship for safety. The French Superior Council, still effectively running the colony, voted to see Uloa permanently removed from New Orleans. And three days later, the Spanish governor left. Legend suggests his ship was set adrift from the port by a group of drunken Creoles returning from a wedding. Unfortunately for the people of New Orleans, the Spanish did not accept this outcome lightly. On August 16, 1769, a Spanish convoy of 21 ships carrying over 2,000 soldiers and an immense amount of firepower moved quietly into the port of New Orleans under the cover of night. The following morning, they awoke the city with a cannon shot, and when the colonists arrived at the river to investigate, they found a Spanish fleet commanded by their new governor, and Captain General of Louisiana, Alejandro O'Reilly. Two days later, on August 18, 1769, the French flag was formally lowered in New Orleans and the Spanish flag raised. Without a doubt, New Orleans was no longer French.
O'Reilly was an Irish expatriate. And because of his extensive military experience and service to Spain, King Charles charged him with the responsibility to put down the rebellious French in New Orleans, punish those involved, and formally re-establish Spanish possession of the colony. So upon arrival in the colony, O'Reilly sent out spies to assemble a list of suspected rebels. Most notably, Denis Nicolas Foucault and Nicolas Chauvin de Lafreniere, both members of the Superior Council that plotted the rebellion, as well as Joseph Villery, who roused the Acadian and Germans to the cause. The governor then ordered a full pardon to all of the other citizens of the colony who had taken part in the revolt in return for their sworn and signed allegiance to Spain's King Charles III. But these men would then face two months of trials for their leadership in the rebellion. And these trials were without a jury or any form of public hearing. Instead, O'Reilly convicted the men of sedition and treason himself. Five of these men, including Lafreniere, were executed by firing squad. Foucault was exiled from New Orleans to be imprisoned in France, and the rest of the riot's leadership were sent to Havana. The exact fate of Joseph Villery is unknown, but it's thought he was either killed while attempting to evade arrest or while in Spanish captivity. For this, Alejandro O'Reilly was henceforth known to the people of New Orleans as Bloody O'Reilly. But his treachery was only compounded when he then forbade the executed men a proper Catholic funeral and burial, forcing their corpses to be left out to rot in the heat and humidity of the Crescent City. A warning to the French Creoles that treason against Spain would be met with the harshest of punishments. Then, one night, the bodies of these men disappeared. Father Dagobert de Langerie arrived in New Orleans from Quebec in 1722. The Capuchin monk, often described as jolly or rotund, quickly became a very popular and beloved man in the community. He cared for the sick, poor, and destitute of the city and was eventually named pastor in 1745. When the Spanish took control of New Orleans, Père de Gobert, as he was affectionately known by his parishioners, was able to retain his charge. Other than the Spanish clergy criticizing him for being too lax, he remained a beloved and influential member of the community. So when Bloody O'Reilly antagonistically forbade his executed parishioners a proper burial, de Gobert got involved petitioning the governor numerous times to change his mind. But each time, O'Reilly refused. 
So Dagobert took action, cementing his place in New Orleans' history and lore. Under the cover of a rainy night, Père Dagobert visited each of the deceased men's families and one by one secretly ushered them through the streets of New Orleans to the church, where he locked them quietly in a small room, one at a time. He came and went over and over again through the night, until at some point in the early morning hours, when all the deceased men's beloved had been collected. Dagobert entered the room where they waited and silently gestured for the families to follow him by candlelight into the nave of the church where they discovered the bodies of their slain loved ones waiting, each covered respectfully with a dark cloth. Somehow, Père Dagobert had managed to obtain these men from under the noses of the Spanish authorities. He then said a funeral mass before helping the families transport the bodies to the cemetery where some say they were buried in unmarked graves with no trace of evidence left to be found by the Spanish. Whether Père Dagobert's treasonous action was ever discovered by Bloody O'Reilly is unknown. Père Dagobert remained a prominent figure in the community for another decade until his untimely death in 1776. The beloved pastor was then interred in a crypt beneath the altar of his church, where he remains to this day. But Dagobert's life was so interwoven into the spiritual and social life of New Orleans that after his death, many believe his spirit remained fueling the oldest ghost story in the history of the Crescent City. According to legend, on certain nights, when the French Quarter is blanketed by fog, the crisp, clear, and beautiful voice of Père de Gobert can still be heard singing the Kyrie in the alleys beside the St. Louis Cathedral. His spectral voice seemingly coming from nowhere. Some have also claimed he can be found walking silently through the aisles of the cathedral, his head down in prayer. And still others say that his apparition appears on foggy days carrying a lantern, followed by the rebellious Frenchmen whose bodies he purportedly saved. But Père Dagobert isn't the only pastor buried beneath the altar of the St. Louis Cathedral who is believed to still keep watch over New Orleans. After gaining control of the city, Bloody O'Reilly left New Orleans in 1770. During his short reign over Louisiana, he abolished the city's governing superior council and instituted the Cabildo, which consisted of regional councilmen, mayors, and an attorney general 
to enforce the laws of Spain. It was also under O'Reilly's governorship that additional levees and roads were built, and the enslavement of Native Americans was abolished in the territory. The following decade, when the American War for Independence began, Louisiana Governor Bernardo de Galvez funneled supplies and weapons to the American revolutionaries and began preparing for potential conflict with Great Britain, fortifying the city's defenses along the river before Spain even formally entered the war in 1779. Galvez would not only successfully protect New Orleans during the war, but he would go on to lead an eclectic group of Creoles, Cajuns, Germans, free people of color, and Spanish soldiers to military victories all along the Gulf Coast region, from Baton Rouge to Natchez, from Mobile to Pensacola. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It was during this time of conflict, in 1778, when another Capuchin friar made New Orleans home, Father Antonio de Sedella. Unlike Père de Gobert, Père Antoine was a rigid ideologue, sent to the colony as an official of the Spanish Inquisition, charged with maintaining strict Catholic orthodoxy and identifying heretics to the faith. But when the governor of Louisiana, Don Esteban Rodriguez Miro, discovered this, he immediately expelled Père Antoine from the city sending him back to Spain the very next day, writing to his superiors. When I read the communication of the Capuchin, I shuddered. The mere name of the Inquisition uttered in New Orleans would not only be sufficient to check immigration, but would also be capable of driving away those who have recently come. 
Unfortunately, before his exile, Père Antoine had already played a controversial role in one of New Orleans's most horrific tragedies. At approximately 1.30, on the afternoon of March 21, 1788, a fire broke out in the home of Army Treasurer Don Nunez. The property, located at the corner of Charters and Toulouse Streets, only a block from the Plaza de Armas, or what is now known as Jackson Square, became engulfed in flames after a candle fell from the altar in Nunez's private chapel. Unfortunately, this particular windy day was also Good Friday. And in spite of the knowledge that the fire was rapidly spreading around the plaza, engulfing businesses and residences alike, Père Antoine and his fellow priests, out of rigid adherence to Catholic tradition, refused to ring the church bell and warning to their fellow New Orleanians. Tragically, within five hours, 856 of New Orleans' 1,100 structures were destroyed. Yet it was only six years later, in 1794, that the city suffered yet another devastating fire, destroying over 200 buildings and resulting in new ordinances which required buildings more than one story in height to be constructed with brick and stucco. Much of the Spanish architecture and aesthetic that graces the French Quarter today is a result of this rebuilding of the city. Père Antoine returned to New Orleans the following year, in 1795, eventually becoming the pastor of the St. Louis Cathedral. And while he was often considered a thorn in the side of the city's governing leaders, his infamy as a rigid ideologue faded with time, as he became a beloved member of the community, known not only for his generosity and kindness, but his care for the city's prisoners and slaves. His humble home with a bare floor and hardly anything more than a pallet, rough table, and of course a crucifix became the center of spiritual authority for the community. Père Antoine died in 1829 at the age of 81. He was mourned by the entire city and memorialized by the Cabildo's passing of an ordinance in which the city council pledged to wear black crepe on their arms in his honor for 30 days. He was then interred in the St. Louis Cathedral alongside Père de Gobert. The two Catholic friars were vastly different in their ideology and practice, but both became icons in the community and beloved by their parishioners. Of course, just like his predecessor, Père de Gobert, Antoine's spirit 
continues to watch over his parishioners. Almost a century after his death, an alley on the northeast side of the St. Louis Cathedral, once known as Cloister Alley, was renamed in his honor. And it's there, in Père Antoine Alley, as well as in the small secluded garden to the rear of the cathedral that was dedicated to the pastor, that many believe his soul still silently roams. But more common to New Orleans legend is that Père Antoine's apparition can often be seen in the cathedral itself during the holiday season, when he is said to return to say mass for the people of New Orleans. The Spanish continued to govern New Orleans until 1802, when King Charles IV retroceded the region to France. But in spite of four decades of rule, New Orleans was never truly a Spanish city. Its customs and traditions, culture and language, remained firmly French. Those who arrived into the colony from Spain often integrated into the already established French families and social order. And since the Spanish were a Catholic empire, there was little change to the spiritual bedrock of the city. Perhaps the greatest impact that the Spanish did have, though, was the distinct architecture used to rebuild New Orleans following the devastating fires of 1788 and 1794. Iconic architecture, still prevalent today, readily identified with this great American city. One such structure is the Cabildo Building, erected to serve as the seat of the Spanish government in colonial Louisiana. It still stands in Jackson Square, just across Pirate's Alley from the St. Louis Cathedral. This iconic pairing of buildings serve as powerful symbols of the spiritual and cultural growth of this unique city. A city that some believe still continues to be watched over by some of its most beloved spiritual leaders. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. This special episode of Southern Gothic contains special theme music written and performed by Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Adam Wright, as well as a performance by veteran blues harpist Bob Hemphill and a guest cameo by Javier Leva of Pretend Radio. All other content is written and produced by Brandon and Brianne Schecksneider. To keep up with future episodes, subscribe today on Apple's podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify, 
or wherever you're listening now. Lucky Little Shacks. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your favorite music. Dust. An 11 song masterpiece by Grammy nominated singer songwriter Adam Wright. Featuring performances by Leanne Womack, Aubrey Sellers, and Shannon Wright. Dust. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.